1: GPT is a chatbot with malign intent. Stealer logs in the C2C market. Signs in the blockchain that some Conti alumni are working with the Akira gang. Tim Starks from the Washington Post Cybersecurity 202 on the White House's new National Cyber Director nominee. Maria Vermazis speaks with David Luber, Deputy Director of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate on space systems as critical infrastructure. And a kinetic strike against a cyber target. Ukrainian drones may have hit Fancy Bears Moscow digs. I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire Intel briefing for Wednesday, July 26, 2023. Another malicious generative AI tool is being sold on the dark web, according to researchers at Netenrich. The bot, called FraudGPT, is designed to write malicious code, craft phishing pages, write scam emails, and more. The tool launched on July 23rd and is being offered for $200 per month or $1,700 per year, the researchers note. While organizations can create ChatGPT and other tools with ethical safeguards, it isn't a difficult feat to reimplement the same technology without those safeguards. A similar tool called WormGPT launched earlier this month. WormGPT also advertised itself as an ethics-free version of ChatGPT. An InfoStealer log is simply the full list of credentials harvested from an infected machine, whether obtained by phishing or some other vector. In its research report, Steeler Logs and Corporate Access, security firm Flair explains that InfoSteeler malware and its surrounding criminal-to-criminal economy has developed into a complex ecosystem that's growing at an exponential rate. Flair writes, The explosive growth rate of InfoSteeler malware represents an ongoing and significant threat to all organizations— Employees regularly save credentials on personal devices or access personal resources on organizational devices, increasing the risk of infection. The report explains driving factors in the InfoSteeler market by examining over 19.6 million Steeler logs. These logs are regularly sold on the dark web after an infection. By examining the logs, Flair was able to determine that 46.9% or more than 8 million had access to Gmail credentials, while just over 1.9% had access to business application credentials like AWS, Salesforce, and GCP. Logs which contained credentials to financial institutions were sold for almost 7.5 times as much as those with access to consumer applications. Most Steeler logs are distributed on Telegram via private or public channels, but Russian market... A dark web marketplace is also a popular site to purchase them. Genesis Market had been a popular clear web online log store until its recent takedown by law enforcement. It now operates exclusively and at a reduced rate on the dark web. Flair goes on to outline three tiers of InfoStealer logs for sale. Tier 1 contains high-value corporate credentials. Tier 2 holds banking and financial service credentials. And Tier 3, finally, consists of more run-of-the-mill consumer application credentials. Credentials seem to be gathered all too often from accounts whose users cross their personal devices with work devices and save their credentials to their browser for ease of access. While saving credentials may be easier in the long run, the user is essentially putting all their access eggs in one basket, allowing crooks who can pick up that basket to walk away with some pretty valuable items. Researchers at Arctic Wolf Labs, through blockchain analysis, assess that actors from the recently splintered ransomware group Conti are likely either working with the Akira gang now or were working with Akira and another group at some time. The researchers conclude, In some instances of pattern analysis, Arctic Wolf Labs has observed cryptocurrency address reuse between threat groups, indicating the individual controlling the address or wallet has either splintered off from the original group or is working with another group at the same time. Akira's code shares many similarities with Conti's, but the presence of what is, after all, widely accessible leaked code isn't conclusive evidence of collaboration. However, the reuse of known blockchain addresses can indicate that at least one former member of Conti has joined Akira, Arctic Wolf says, In at least three separate transactions, Akira threat actors sent the full amount of their ransom payment to Conti-affiliated addresses. The three transactions totaled over 600000 U.S. dollars. The researchers note that Akira is probably an opportunistic organization and has taken advantage of mostly small or medium-sized businesses who are not employing multi-factor authentication. According to Akira's leak site, The group has compromised at least 63 organizations since their inception, with approximately 80% of their victims being small to medium-sized businesses. Notably, some of the victims have been removed from the leak site. And finally, according to The Telegraph, Ukrainian drones that hit Moscow on Monday, which Moscow said did little damage, appear to have struck an office building that houses the GRU's Unit 26165, an organization responsible for Russian offensive cyber operations. The unit's activities are best known under their Fancy Bear nickname. Ukrainian officials said more attacks against Russia could be expected and derided Russia's ability to defend its own airspace. Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Mykhailo Fedorov said, Today at night, drones attacked the capital of the Orks and Crimea electronic warfare and air defense are already less able to defend the skies of the occupiers. So, whether by accident or intention, the kinetic and cyber phases of the hybrid war seem to have converged this week at a Moscow office high-rise. Coming up after the break, Tim Starks from The Washington Post's Cybersecurity 202 on the White House's new National Cyber Director nominee. Maria Vermasis speaks with David Luber, Deputy Director of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate on Space Systems as Critical Infrastructure. Stay with us. Maria Vermasis is host of the T-Minus podcast right here on the N2K network, and she recently spoke with Deputy Director of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate, David Luber. She files this report.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Dave. I really appreciate it. And we get to talk about my favorite topic, which is space cybersecurity. So um, you are the perfect person to start us off with an overview of what is the state of cybersecurity in space right now?
2: Well, thanks. And you know, cybersecurity in space is a, one of my favorite topics as well. And I always think about uh, cybersecurity as a team sport. And as you look across uh, the U.S. government and our community, uh, within the Department of Defense, the Space Force, CISA, NIST, and our Defense Industrial Base, as well as the Department of Commerce, we're all working together when it comes to ensuring that we have the right cybersecurity uh, for our current and future space systems. And for the National Security Agency, we focus specifically on the cybersecurity for our national security systems. As you might imagine, our military, our government uh, relies on space uh, and that, that uh, capability needs to be secured to ensure that uh, we can withstand the threats that come from multiple adversaries.
0: Could you help me understand Maybe the different roles that the U.S. government plays in helping secure these systems, or maybe who specifically is or is responsible for what, or could you could you give me a sense of that, please?
2: Well, first off, as I mentioned, that team sport effort uh, at NSA, we're responsible for ensuring that the guidance is in place for those uh, key national security systems, even those systems in space that are supporting our weapons uh, capabilities uh, for the U.S. military. But beyond uh, that activity, then we look to other partners uh, in CISA, in the Office of Space Commerce, and in NIST to really help in the areas of commercial use of space and, and the commerce of space and to ensure that those systems are also secure. But collectively together, we work together to ensure that the guidance can be used and, and consumed by both the national security systems as well as other US government users and uh, commercial entities. Just to give you an example, at NSA, we publish cybersecurity advisories that give insights into a variety of different threat activities that uh, impact all types of different national security systems. But in in the case of others, uh, these advisories can also be used if you're in the commercial segment, if you're in uh, other areas, to ensure that you're securing those systems in a way that uh, would keep an adversary. And when I talk about adversaries, I think about the adversaries of Russia, the PRC, Iran, North Korea, and even the non-state actors like ransomware actors from penetrating uh, those key systems. We've also published advisories on how to protect the link segment, ensuring that uh, the proper use of transec is employed, and even in some of the user segment areas to ensure that the user segment modems have the right firmware, that they're monitored just like any other device that would be used on a network.
0: I'm very curious to get your thoughts on the calls for designating space as a critical infrastructure. In your view, would that help move things along in the right direction, or what What would that materially impact if space were to become uh, designated as critical infrastructure?
2: Well, first I'd offer that uh, the, the White House has not made a decision uh, regarding uh, space as a critical infrastructure, and if called upon by the White House— for insights and and thoughts on that. Obviously, NSA would provide uh, input to that decision. But collectively, I'd offer, too, that the team is already working well together. And uh, absent any sort of decision, uh, we will continue to focus on how we work together as a team across the U.S. government, but in particular, that very important partnership between government and industry, because I think that's where uh, the power of partnerships really come together, sharing insights, sharing guidance, and ensuring that we can change as the threat uh, arena changes as well. Just as we're talking right now, there are new vulnerabilities being discovered. There are changes that are happening in the cyber ecosystem. So this is not something that you publish, and you're finished. This is something that's continuous that we need to work together on uh, over time.
0: And as space and commercial space especially continues to to grow at an astounding pace, I'm wondering, are there any maybe emerging technologies that are of interest that uh, you feel could present great opportunities for perhaps hardening systems or helping move along the maturity of cybersecurity and space systems?
2: Absolutely. You know, when I think about any type of system out there today, some of the things that I immediately think about, especially for uh, the space ecosystem, is concepts like implementing zero trust within ground system segments. It's a different uh, thought process, but really ensuring that zero trust principles are applied and that we have the indications when one of those threat actors are attempting to gain access to those systems or if they are successful because zero trust does assume breach, that they have little maneuver space to actually impact the actual space systems themselves. I'd also offer that uh, building in cybersecurity from the beginning. If we look back in time, some of the early space systems didn't necessarily consider cybersecurity as one of the primary requirements during the acquisition, development, implementation. So I think it's really important for us to think about how we ensure that cybersecurity is thought about during the actual development within the entire ecosystem that I mentioned earlier, and then for, uh, in particular, for national security systems, but not just national security systems, the future of cryptography. We need to ensure that we have quantum-resistant cryptography for our national security systems and U.S. government systems as well as commercial systems to ensure that cryptography advances along with the space systems and all that ecosystem that I just mentioned. And then lastly, I'd say that the complexity of space systems in proliferated LEO architectures now demand the ability for those systems to be able to communicate in space from system to system. So different technologies, different applications of cryptography and zero trust, I think, are all areas that I think are not only emerging, but uh, in in many cases critical to ensure that current and future space systems can be relied on by the national security systems owners.
0: Dave Luber at NSA, thank you so much for walking me through this today. Uh, I'm always fascinated hearing about not only what NSA is doing, but also space cyber, personal passion of mine. I really appreciate your time and expertise today.
2: It's great to be here today. Thank you.
1: That's Maria Vermasis from the T-Minus podcast, speaking with David Luber, Deputy Director of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate. If you've not yet checked out T-Minus, what are you waiting for? It's a great show. Check it out. It is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Tim Starks. He is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, welcome back. How do you, Dave. So uh, your most recent uh, posting here over on the Post's website uh, is titled White House's Pick for National Cyber Director is Met with Praise and Questions. Um, take us through what's going on here because it's not exactly
3: straightforward. Yeah, this has been a somewhat odd sequence of events. You'll recall that toward the end of last year, we found out Chris Inglis was leaving as the very, very first national cyber director. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's that position that has a strategic and advisory role to the president. It's kind of the replacement for the cyber czar that used to, to be existing in the White House. He left one of his deputies, I, I think his principal deputy, uh, Kimba Walden, has been serving as an acting director. And by pretty much all accounts doing an excellent job of it. Uh, she's, she'd overseen the rollout of the National Cybersecurity Strategy. She led the uh, development of the implementation plan. People were expecting her to, to get the nomination, but it kept not happening. She took that job in February. And then me and a colleague, Ellen Nakashima, we both combined on a story last week that wrote about her being told she was not going to get the job because of personal debt issues that uh, most people were pretty skeptical should have been or or were the real reason for her not getting the nomination. Hmm. So today, uh, or or, I guess I should say yesterday, uh, the White House announced that Harry Coker, that's a name that we put in that story last week, was as the favored candidate. Harry would be the nominee. He's a former NSA CIA official, actually was part of the transition team for the uh, Biden-Harris administration. Has some cyber experience, but there's some questions about how much compared to especially Kemba and, and maybe other potential nominees. And I think that's where we end up. You know, people seem to think highly of him overall. Uh, he has some, he has support on the Hill from key figures. So, um, you know, he has support. You know, Chris Inglis uh, told me that he thought he'd be a good candidate. That, I think that gets us up to speed. It's kind of a long, winding saga so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me that... Um you know, Coker seems to have a lot of support. There's there's little question that he can come at this from a leadership point of view, like he has all the experience there to to lead an agency. But uh, your reporting, uh, you spoke to some folks who may have some skepticism when it comes to his knowledge, particularly in the cyber realm.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, he certainly has some of that. He has been at Auburn University at the McCurry Institute, as a senior fellow on cyber, he has advised some cyber companies, but he wasn't necessarily all that explicitly focused on cyber at the NSA or CIA. I mean, it was certainly part of what he did, but I don't think people thought of it as the main thing he did. So if you're looking at someone like him, who, again, like you said, uh, like the people I talked to, even the people who were who were skeptical of him, praised him as a person, praised him as for his leadership, his intelligence. Compare him to like a Kimba Walden who had been you know, back at – DHS covering cyber, was there when CISA was being uh, stood up and and was an attorney, was at Microsoft with the Digital Crimes Unit, was there for the founding of, essentially the founding of the National Cyber Director's Office. You know, Inglis came in uh, last year uh, after getting confirmed, I think it was around June of last year. She joined in June of last year as well. So we're talking about someone who, who had a lot of capabilities and a lot of experience specifically in this job compared to Harry. And that's, I think, that's where he, you know, has has some skeptics as about whether he should have been the choice, whether he was the best pick for the job.
1: Yeah, going back to Kemba Walden, and I, I have to say, I'm a little surprised we didn't see more from the Biden administration uh, to fight for her
3: getting this job. It's it struck everybody as strange because. Like I said, everybody pretty much thinks she's done a good job. I, I I say pretty much because I can't think of anybody who has said she's done a bad job. I've heard people, you know, criticize things like the implementation strategy, maybe having some issues with it, but but nobody said she did a bad job, and, and everybody seems to think she's done a good job. She's a black woman. Uh, there are not a lot of uh, black women in leadership positions in the Biden right. administration, and they prioritize right. that, you know, in, with like Supreme Court nominees and things like that. So it seems like that would have been a factor for her. Harry Coker is also black. So it's not as though they're completely abandoning diversity, but black woman is is a different kind of diversity level we're talking about than a black man, and it's it's, it's confounded people. This notion that um, it's an issue of personal debt, to,
1: to what degree do folks think that is truly the case? Nobody,
3: nobody that I've talked to or nobody that I've seen react to it publicly seems to think that that is the authentic explanation. Sure, that was the explanation hmm. she was given, I should point out that Kemba, you know, at some time around the same point that the White House was saying that she's not going to get the job, she, she pulled herself back from consideration. So that's okay. something to point out. You know, first off, the, if you go back to the story we wrote last week, you'll see that personnel expert types uh, that we spoke to cannot recall a time that a nominee was sunk by any personal debt. You know, maybe questioned about it, but not sunk by it. And... Um, it seems to have come out of nowhere as this issue for her specifically and i think that's part of what makes people skeptical about it combined with the fact that she was doing a good job it makes people think there's something else going on will she stay on with the agency yeah she's I th- my understanding is that she's staying on indefinitely at, at the ac- as the acting um but what happens after that once uh harry coker's nomination advances um I, I would probably expect her to leave but i don't think we have a word on that yet all right, well, Tim Starks is the author of
1: the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's The CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.